Welcome to episode 15 of the Behind the Business podcast, the music industry podcast where I talk to anybody and everybody from the UK music industry about themselves personally, about what they do, about what their role includes, about their motivations, for how they got into the business. Uh, this week is with music supervisor Jen Moss. I've known Jen for a number of years from the wonderful world of synchronisation in the UK. Uh, she's a great person to sit down and have a chat with. Uh, she really does know her stuff. And we talked about everything music supervision and sync. Uh, so we talked about where where she started from, her love of film, how she went from being part of the Warner Records sync department through to really making this new role as a in-house music supervisor as part of the Warner Records system, her own, and what she's doing with that at the moment. So it was a really, really interesting chat with Jen uh, that I had the summer of 2018. Uh, massive thank you to Jen for welcoming me into her flat um, in South London. Really appreciate that. Um, yes, so once again, I'm going to shut up and here is my conversation with Jen Moss. Music and film were my two big passions mm -hmm. and love. And so when it came time, when I um, I I grew up in France in Corsica, and so like you do. I like you do. I did my baccalaureate, which is equivalent eight levels, um, but knew I wanted to move back to London as soon as you know that was done. Mm -hmm. So my high school was over basically. Yeah. And uh, and so when it came time to, I knew, well, I didn't so much want to do a degree as my parents were, uh, you know, make sure you have a degree kind okay. of thing. Uh, I actually had aspirations back in the day of being a singer myself. Uh, Don't we all? Oh, well, quite. Until you go, oh, wait <laughs> There a are other people that are better at it. <laughs> Way better than me. <laughs> I can make more money behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so I very much had this kind of, right, I'll have a degree because then I'll have a degree kind of thing. It mm -hmm. was very much, do I study music or film, film or music? It was always, you know. And in the end, I decided to do music and sort of keep film as my passion. Kind mm -hmm. of. I knew whichever one I went to study, the other would, you know. Um, and so I decided to do a music business uh, degree. It was the first year, in fact, that... Uh, so the Academy of Contemporary Music in Guildford, which is a music college, um, mm -hmm. I was the very first music business degree. So up until then, they'd had performance degrees and I think maybe a production one as well. Yeah. Where is the main places where you do the socialising, where you do the networking? Well, I now days? tend to, because I, now that I'm a music supervisor, mm -hmm. and so I now wear the sort of client hat as opposed to the rights owner's hat because I don't tend to go to so many of these things yeah. um, I tend to focus more on individual relationships mm -hmm. so I make more of a point of going to see specific rights owners and hanging out with them um, and I'm now getting and I'm now sort of uh, fully recognised uh, as a client where right. I think initially there was some sort of trepidation because I'm a music supervisor but because I'm in-house at Warner. I was gonna bring, I was gonna come back round to that so we'll loop back around okay, cool. in a minute but yeah so but because yeah so I think initially there was a bit of a like mm, what mm -hmm. is this kind of thing um but now that I've obviously been doing it a couple of years and you know I have quite a lot of credits under my belt and more importantly have been licensed people have seen that it's not a case of I only license Warner Music very much license everything from everybody yeah, yeah, yeah. and therefore you know as far as other rights owners are concerned I'm a music supervisor like any other mm -hmm. um, because I'm now sort of being starting to be seen as a client I'm getting invited to their gigs and to their social events and to so I tend to sort of do more of those mm -hmm. rather than you know 
a sink specific Giant thing or, or the other thing you know I'll go to the MPA events every now and again mm-hmm. or AIM or whatever but but sink drinks is a particular <laughs> a particular kind of beast that I just don't um, yeah it's just not for me anymore I always, I always liked from when I was in it I was like there was a vibe there was a kind of a camaraderie yeah in that area of the creative part of the music industry that I never really saw in some of the other kind of yeah, A&R-y places right, actually. and all that it sort of stuff. Yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah, the sync, the UK sync community, I think, is very supportive and very... Which mm-hmm. is great, and I do really love that about it. And, and when you do go to the Music Week Sync Awards or, you know, or a PlayStation party or whatever it may be, like, things yeah, yeah, where yeah, yeah, you yeah. do see other people, it is great. And there is this lovely sense of community and camaraderie and, and not so much rivalry even if you know with rights owners in particular technically that's what's sort of happening mm-hmm. um but as i say i think sink drinks in particular it's just, i think it's just become this all-encompassing sort of beast slash a real sort of piss up mm-hmm. uh, which is absolutely fine and if that's what you want to do then great but because yeah. that's not something that i personally am interested in anymore i can't i mean you get up in the morning and run 10k <laughs> yeah such a smug face. <laughs> <laughs> so you just mentioned something that I wanted to bring up. Mm-hmm. The kind of the, the slight strange nature of your current role. Yeah. Um, how does it work? So basically, <clears throat> um, I have been in the sync department at Warner for... Warner Records. Warner Records, the label, yeah, exactly. Uh, For nine years. Mm -hmm. Um, But film has always been my big passion and music supervision, therefore, specifically for film, has always kind of of been the end goal and what I sort of wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And before my job at Warner's, when I worked at Boozy and Hawks, the music publisher, I sort of supervised a couple of films there. And sort of got a taste for it. Um, was that the Skellig? Yes. And those sorts of films yeah, back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Exactly. Sort of like, yeah. yeah, Coco and Eagle, which was a big Stravinsky uh, film in particular, was kind of you know the one that I really got mm-hmm. a proper taste for it. And when I sort of first moved over to Warner's, it is something that I did kind of suggest at the time, you know, possibly looking into. Um, but it was sort of shot down. Um, you know, my manager at the time was a very kind of no. This is what a traditional sync department is, and what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, whilst on that side of things, a little short sighted. Equally, at the time, we were a very small team, so I can kind of appreciate that. You know, looking at non traditional means wasn't yep. necessarily the moment for that. Fast forward to uh, Warner buying Parlophone mm-hmm. and that catalogue and that whole restructure, etc. Yep. meant that we had a completely new sync team, new management. So suddenly I went from a team of three to a team of nine as nice. a sort of sync team. Um, and after those first sort of years of us doing and under new management, doing really well in terms of traditional quote unquote sync income. Mm-hmm. So advertising, yep. you know, retro. Um, not retroactive, uh, reactive sort of film licensing, etc. Meaning that our numbers were really good and therefore we had the freedom to sort of look at non-traditional areas mm-hmm. at the same time. Uh, and effectively how the supervision thing came about is that my manager, um, music supervised how to, no, what's it called? Kill Your Friends. Yes. Uh, which is based on the music industry mm-hmm. uh, novel. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so sort of when he did that, I immediately was like, whoa, hang on, is this what we're doing now? Because like me, 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 let me do this. This is what I want to do. Like, mm-hmm. I definitely think we can make a go of this. Um, and, and credit to him, he's a very forward thinking guy and sort of said to me like, okay, give it a go. Still very much alongside your current duties, which at the time was mainly advertising, what mm-hmm. I was sort of doing. That's where the money is. And um, and so initially it was very much a case of just everything and anything to get the credits up. So I did a lot of super low budget horror movies. Hey, there's, like, there's a lot of movies out there that... Yeah, absolutely, and absolutely. And, and, you know, and the pitch at the time was just, you know, you don't charge a fee, you don't have to use any specific amount, just, you know, just to get the relationships going, to get the credits showing, show that there's an appetite for it and a market for it. 
Okay. Um, so you kind of you could jump in and kind of really be very aggressive at that because saying, hey, if you want this, it's not going to charge you anything and yeah. it's only going to be helpful. I mean, at that point, it was literally... And because, obviously, of not having any credits at the time, it was newer filmmakers, lower-budget films that we were approaching. Now, here's a question. Do you think you would have been able to do that if you hadn't been effectively employed? No. Absolutely by not. a <laughs> large company. Exactly. No, 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 no. Very much so. Uh, yeah, if I was freelance, then there's no way, you know, I wouldn't financially be able to say, sure, I'll spend the next five months working on your film for absolutely nothing so, in return. So strangely, though, that that kind of forward-thinking thought process from Warner's perspective was kind of, it was useful to them because they were branching out into a new area. It was useful for you because you were given the opportunity and the free reign I guess to go and learn new things creatively Mm -hmm. get involved in something on the slightly left of centre and it helped the filmmakers because they got a service out of it that they wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise so actually thinking of it in those terms of you not being able to do it if you were freelance is is a little bit short-sighted of me apologies but (laughs) but because it was actually quite a good thing all round Absolutely. I mean, it's yeah, it was a win-win, win-win-win situation. But, you know, things being, yeah, as you say, financially, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have been able to do that. Also, nor would I, you know, having no credits at that time, me basically going, hi, I'm Warner Music, I will supervise your film, meant that these filmmakers were like, my God, yes, of course. Whereas, you know, with all due respect, mm. as great music supervisor as I am if I had just rocked up hi I'm Jen Moss from nowhere let me music supervise your film I guess so may not necessarily yeah yeah, I suppose so but there's the other side of this that I wanted to quickly touch upon was how was it viewed especially by the other rights owners when you're kind of effectively coming from a rights Mm. owner to provide a service do they all kind of look at it and go how does this work? Yeah. So very much initially when um, when we sort of started things. And, and obviously the whole sort of idea with it is, you know, obviously by virtue of me being at Warner, when it comes to looking for tracks primarily, of course I'm always going to first and foremost look within our own catalogues. Because A, that's what I know sort of best. And B, mm-hmm. have the opportunity to be more flexible on fees because have direct relationships with managers where I can talk to them and the labels and try to convince them, etc. But, you know, you cannot impose any kind of exclusivity on filmmakers. So either if there are specific tracks that the directors want or having looked in our own stuff, we actually don't have anything that fits the brief very much go out to other rights owners to clear tracks and to search for tracks etc and like you say initially there was very much a bit of trepidation of oh hang on a minute like you are you are a rival effectively Mm -hmm. you know what I don't really understand because there's an element of I mean strangely you're privy to a little bit of information yeah that on an internal basis you probably shouldn't in terms of well things like pricing and stuff like that oh sure yeah as as kind of a well that is what makes me that is kind of what gives me the bit of an edge as a music supervisor is I know having done it myself for years how rights owners you know act Mm -hmm. and react and so yeah the, the sort of edge that I would sort of get that you I think you know you're kind of referring to is for example on tracks that I would clear on the master side tracks that belong to Warner where I've had the conversation with management they've agreed to license it at you know whatever fee Mm -hmm. and then I go to the publisher the publisher isn't really in a position to you know give me a quote which is exponentially higher because I know for a fact that management are happy to approve it Mm -hmm. at this lower fee so um, yeah I think you know some rights owners handle that better than others but also Technically, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that there are there will be times that you suddenly know how much Sony or Universal are quoting on a thing, so that then you can kind of go, well, Sony. Oh, I see. Sony only really charge that sort of stuff for this tier of artists. I see. Maybe I see. We I can see. use that to our advantage yeah. in other areas. I mean, I'm not going like to lie to you, and obviously, I'm not going to name names. But yeah, yeah, what yeah. has been really interesting in me 
as I say, wearing my client hat rather than my rights owner hat yeah. since doing music supervision, is I now have a sense of who's a more friendly rights owner than others when okay. it comes to yeah. quoting, etc. Who are open uh, to a conversation. Exactly. Who's open to a conversation, who quotes fairly, mm-hmm. who... And that does affect, when I'm searching for stuff, it will affect what I do and don't put forward. You know, if I see that a certain track is with a certain publisher who I know to be really unreasonable and extortionate when it comes to fees, then, you know, I will try and dissuade uh, directors from looking into those tracks because mm-hmm. I know they can be really difficult. And vice versa, you know, there are certain rights owners who I know are great and who are always going to, who don't see themselves as, you know, the gatekeepers mm-hmm. who will put it forward. You know, it's always sort of been... basically was at Boozy's two or three years I think which was my first job in the industry straight out of uh, college Mm -hmm. Uh, I initially joined the sync team as a marketing assistant so I would you know do their newsletters and send out physical CD samplers at the time can you imagine that's how long ago this was remember those days at Sony as well Uh, and things like that Uh, and then actually very quickly I sort of moved from that into a more creative role Mm -hmm. uh, where yeah I'd sort of um, be working on advertising and film again were sort of my two main areas Um, was there two or three years was great but uh, Boozy's by virtue of being a classical music publisher it's obviously fairly limited in scope in terms of, you know, what you can kind well, of... Well, it's quite, it's fairly on, or is it, no, not omnidirectional, the complete opposite of omnidirectional. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's very specific. I remember the same from my time at 360, yeah. is that you can do really, really well if the briefs come in... Exactly, for this very specific... Yeah. Dance music on my music, side or... Great, yeah. but yes, exactly. Uh, and so I kind of just wanted to, you know, move on from there. And so I went from there to Warner, which was also not just a switch. It was different in a lot of ways. So it was moving from a very niche catalogue to a very broad catalogue, from uh, a sort of independent to a major, mm-hmm. and also from a publisher to a label. Um, so the complete so whole yeah. package, basically. And uh, and yes, yeah, so Warner. What does that look like from a, I guess a, business culture perspective? When you've gone from, pretty much the exact opposite yeah, on yeah. every level, a specific independent publisher, to a major, record label that pretty much deals with anything. Yeah, I mean, yeah, completely different, completely different culture. Good and bad, you know. The, the good was obviously sort of you know going from this very independent small almost almost DIY kind of vibe to you know suddenly I have an expense account and you know mm-hmm. there are well-known gigs to go to every night yeah. and you know all of the benefits that come when you work for a major corporation and all of this sort of quite exciting stuff um and just from a sort of client perspective, it's a lot easier to get meetings when you pick up the phone and you go, hi, I'm Warner Music, as opposed to, hi, I'm Boozy and Hawks, and people are like, who the hell is Boozy and Hawks, kind of thing. Sounds like an alcohol company. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, that's literally what everyone's like, oh, I'm Boozy. <laughs> um, but then equally, the frustrations that come with, you know, working for a major corporation, and as I say, at the time, my manager was a very sort of tunnel vision for, this is what we do, these are the parameters, this is what this looks like. These are the processes. So how much has it changed internally from kind of 2010 yeah. to now, from, a, from the major label perspective? Bearing in mind that that's, these past eight years, just sync is kind of the, the darling yeah, side of absolutely. the music absolutely. I mean, massively. It, it used to be that we, I mean, A, which I found really shocking when I started, the amount of people who didn't really even know what sync was or understand what sync was internally. Yeah. Um, who didn't get it at all. Um, which I but that's that's an interesting one. That There's people who don't know what it is, and then there's a second element of that of people who don't understand its relevance. Mm. I can understand people going, oh, right, okay, 
So that's what that is. Yeah, yeah. But it's another thing to say, yeah, well, that's not really worth it, is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not quite. All, all the flip side of that, which uh, occasionally happens every now and again, mercifully not so much. Uh, one thing that would happen a lot is you would get the promotions team, so that's press, radio, TV, would often come to us and basically say, right, we can't get traction on this track anywhere. No one wants it. No one wants to play it on the radio. No one wants to put it on TV. Get us a sync, which is like, cool, you can't get it played on the radio, but I'll go get it an ad, shall I? Which, (laughs) P.S., it's not even how this works anyway. I don't go out and go, use this track, McDonald's, you know, or whatever. For nothing. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Pay me some money Uh to use this track that nobody wants to listen Um, to. And in terms of, you know, what has been another major change is uh, label and therefore on behalf of the artist, amenability to doing sync. So again, when I sort of first started, obviously this is more relevant on the advertising than the film side, Mm because as you said before, film, if it's creatively interesting, people tend to be more up for doing it. It's just a different... People have a different viewpoint, especially creative people have a different viewpoint. I've got... I, I work with young creators who will openly say the only thing that my music will ever advertise is my music Mm. which I get but it's also a little bit short-sighted in the modern climate that we're in but the sentiment I completely understand yeah absolutely whereas when it when it's being utilized in another art form it's a very different way of looking yeah yeah well film tends to be a lot more you know as an artist i'm lending my voice to another artist kind of thing whereas advertising (laughs) is as an artist i'm selling something yeah but uh but but yeah to that you know when i started there was still a lot of sort of reticence of you know is this the right brand or even more frustrating you know you'd um you having done this yourself you know how difficult it is to actually get a track onto an advert you know to get an advertising agency wanting to use a track and what would often happen is the label would go oh but could they use the new single coming up we could we get the new single on there instead the one that's out in two months because that would be a lot better for us which obviously isn't how that sort of works creatively yeah but or yeah it's just general reluctance to kind of you know oh it's it's not a good look to have it whereas to be honest with you nobody there are obviously exceptions, but this whole you've sold out if your music's on an ad thing just isn't relevant anymore. Not and on the contrary, either. it's how a lot of people are finding music, you know, yeah. with Shazam and everything, mm-hmm. which I think is when the switch happened internally in terms of people's perceptions of sync being like, aha, actually, this is a really good marketing tool for us. We need to start giving more love to the sync team because they can really get our music out there. Well, also, it's just because your music is on adverts doesn't mean you haven't had the the sign-off yeah. on it either. It's not just, oh, I'm just being used on everything and anything that I don't want to be. No, God, of course. I mean, it's... we can't, exactly. It's You know, you still have to go for approvals yeah, yeah, yeah. and that sort of process. What skills are you happy that you had in your locker or that you learnt along the way I see, that I see. Cool. really, really helped yeah. you um, n- navigate yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Well, the world. Number one, um, this is especially on the sort of... Because sync uh, on the sort of cre- what we call the creative side of sync is, uh, is almost two sort of elements. Yes, there's the creative, which is the actual searching of music for a specific brief. Mm-hmm. And for that, I think your number one skill, and it's, you know, I think where a lot of music supervisors, or rather, you know, XA&R guys who suddenly decide they want to be music supervisors, let's just say. No comment. Fall down, is uh, it's not about having cool taste in music. It's not about being up on whatever the cool latest releases are. Of course, that is important and that plays into it. It's a very specific skill it's about what works for the visuals. Yeah. And a lot of the time, really shit, terrible music is what is needed <laughs> for, you know, a specific... And you have to be able to find that. So it's not about your own personal taste, it's about what is relevant for the mm-hmm. picture, basically. So that's sort of the creative side. Um, but the other element of it is, effectively, it's a sales job, what we're doing. Because as much as, obviously, the music is incredibly important, it's about relationships. It's about mm-hmm. the relationships that you have with clients 
and therefore you get the briefs in because they like you. It's mm-hmm. as much about you as it is your catalogue kind of thing. Um, and that is something that uh, I had to learn because I, I'm not a people person, shockingly. Uh, and that's something that I... I think my early years at Boozy's really helped in that sort of, okay. you know, me forming that as a foundation, uh, really forcing myself basically completely out of my shell and to become uh, a sociable person, I guess, for want of a better term. And mm-hmm. what I, my sort of trick that I quickly learned was, um, <laughs> it's almost acting to a certain extent of basically almost forging your personality to the client that you're talking to. So finding out what it is that they're into and what they like and relating to them on that personal level as much as about the music. Mm-hmm. And so for me personally, what that is, is is film and TV, which is my big sort of passion. You know, I'm a massive culture vulture. And that's where I really sort of related mm-hmm. to people. And that is how I managed to really get in on the film side of things. Um, and I think it's something else that sort of perhaps sets me apart is my true love and passion for film and film making mm-hmm. means that I can talk to filmmakers on that level, right. not just on the music side. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a skill that I sort of had to, to learn and develop. Um, and I think is now one of my strengths basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. How did you find having to manage, I guess, the internal pressures that come with a major uh yeah tricky i mean i i mean how much pressure yeah. is there coming down from up high you mentioned oh could they use the next single because mm-hmm. that would be much better for us yeah. so there's a lot of there's a con- lot contradicting ways of thinking of going internal on pressure um i think a lot of it comes down to management and being shielded or not you know it's the trickle down sort of effect mm-hmm. um so my first few years, I had a manager who <laughs> very much trickled down. And so that pressure was, right. you know, uh, was very much transported down to us, which I don't think makes for, you know, a conducive working environment. How do you get stress through that sort of stuff? Because it's yeah, You kind of just got to tune out the noise. Because right. if you let yourself get... The way that I always approached it, when A&R would come and say, we need to get this track on, you know, whatever... You'd say yes to them, but under no circumstances would I start pushing it to clients. Because, as I said, your clients and your relationship with clients are the basis of what you do. And if you start pissing clients off, because they can tell when you're actively trying to force something on them that isn't relevant, Mm -hmm. you know. Especially on the advertising side. Advertising people do not like to be told what to do. I guess it's a bit different. You can, to a degree, get away with it that little bit more when you're coming from a major because of the sheer amount of stuff that yeah. you own. I was always from from an independent... I always remember my time from independence. You kind of go, I don't have that luxury of the sheer num- you know, the, the size the of catalogue yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that whereby most clients will automatically, right, we're getting in touch with those three yeah, labels yeah, and those three publishers every single time. Everybody else is a bit of a yeah, scattergun yeah, yeah. approach. It's that if I started sending stuff that I thought they should be using as opposed to what they wanted, yeah. my phone would suddenly stop ringing. Mm-hmm. Whereas that probably doesn't happen at a well, I mean, or a you're, you're right. They would, they would still, but in terms of the direct relationships that you have, with people it's not going to be helpful it's not going to be helpful no. and so what you do is you don't go oh here's this track so you start pitching a track that's irrelevant for everything mm-hmm. when there's real pressure what you do with the clients that you do know is just just here's this new track check it out kind of thing but not with any view of yeah, trying yeah, yeah, to force yeah. it down anybody's throats was amazing was learning about all these different facets of the music industry which obviously I had no clue about Mm -hmm. uh, because at that point I was still just I'm going to be an artist you know Uh, and that is where I learned about um, music supervision basically okay so you that's where you found out that's where I learned about it and literally was like hang on a minute music for film 
my two great yes please that's the thing that so I it was to do. literally a thing at university yeah. as opposed to okay I know a little bit more about the music industry now I'll exactly. get into it and then you stumble across it was it. at college light bulb moment you know while sitting in class that's the thing I need to go after that's what I want to do okay. and so from there sort of sync more broadly in mm-hmm. terms of you know audio visual kind of and so I knew that's what I wanted to sort of go after basically so when I finished my degree, um, I actually worked uh, at the college for I think my first six months or maybe a year uh, whilst looking for sync slash supervision jobs mm-hmm. uh, in London and then got the boozy gig and yeah. from there basically. Okay, so it was it was always there, it was always something that you wanted to do. Yeah, very and much And then so. even the area in the business came along well, the focus came on quite early on yes, as well. It yeah, wasn't yeah, yeah, just a, exactly. I'd do that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so there was, a, there was quite a lot of focus. Yeah, uh, very much so. And, and also just had no interest in really any other aspect of the music industry in terms of me working it. Like, you know, marketing never wanted or promotion. To be no, never. Oh, my Lord, no. Like, I'd be terrible at AR. <laughs> that was one of the first things when I started at Warner that I really quickly, because obviously when I was at Boozies, it's all a bunch of dead composers. So there's not really much uh, yeah. opportunity. But at Warner, really quickly, I sussed out just how terrible I would be at A&R because we'd have new signings come in and systematically I'd be like, this is amazing. It's going to be massive. And it'd be dropped within six months or vice versa. Right. This is bullshit. No one's going to buy it. And mm-hmm. then it becomes this huge... I'm like, oh, cool. That's why I'm not doing this. So it's very similar to Terrible me. Terrible at this. Terrible. Yeah, 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 everything that does sell well, I don't want to sell well, and no. vice versa. Well, which again, going back to what I was saying about your skill as a music supervisor, it's not that. It's not recognising what's going to be good or what. It's, it's... just recognising what's mm-hmm. right for a specific, you know, and that's what I love about supervision. Taste doesn't even, you know, really mm-hmm. come into it. It's about honing in on what the scene needs, what the ad needs, what, you know. You know... You no longer do the the dual role between sync and supervision. It's literally just so full time. So yeah, basically after that sort of first year of saying yes to everything and anything to see if it works, while still very much doing advertising, Mm -hmm. quickly proved that it was a successful model, and we started getting onto some bigger, better films with bigger budgets and or better known talent, etc. Have you got annual targets? Uh, within your role now, yeah. Like, do so you need to have three loosely, basically annual credits or that sort of stuff? Or... Yeah, kind of. So they're not sort of hard and fast ones, right. but we sort of had kind of had a sort of three year business plan, which by the end of that first year we'd already sort of got to. So mm-hmm. then kind of revised. Right. Um, but again, the sort of flex beauty of the flexibility of me doing this in house rather than being freelance is we can play around with those. Um, targets mm-hmm. so we have the opportunity to uh, you know now that we're established and that I have some big credits to my name etc you know we have the opportunity to work on bigger things where we do charge you know supervision fees and there's a scale etc but we still have the flexibility of uh, well I guess it's important for the part of the industry the role of a music supervisor that actually you do charge oh absolutely because it is a role it is a thing that costs money completely and if large companies that can kind of use it as a loss leader come in too often yeah yeah kind of ruins the whole it's important to keep the value of it and you know and like I say it's a lot of work and Mm -hmm. it's you know depending on the film but you know on something like Itonia which was huge amounts of I mean that's a whole year of my I was was going to ask I was going to say so how does it what what does a project a film project look like yeah so it completely depends you know certain you know I'll do everything from low budget independent British films where they've only got the budget for maybe two or three tracks but just having a bit of commercial music as opposed to just score gives it more production value and instantly gives it a bit are of a you lift. doing everything are you do are you working with the score and the director on that side of so things as well as the we're moving track? into up okay. until now no um but I will do all source music so commercial and library music yeah, as yeah. well um, so you're not in theory you're not advising you're not working with composers 
No, just yet. not just yeah, exactly. It's something that we are now branching into, right. but historically, no, uh, just on the source side. But yeah, so it will be everything from I'll help them find a couple of tracks to sort of punch things up, which is obviously a very quick yeah, uh, yeah. process. Um, you know, I uh, at the moment I've literally just I'm helping clear a track for Billy Piper's uh, directorial debut, uh, but that's literally just one because track kind of thing. Oh god. <laughs> Sorry, that was awful. But I'm really, really, really happy that I said it. <laughs> so yeah, so you know, that's a very quick sort of, almost a favour basically. It's filmmakers that I've yeah. worked with before, you know, helping with the process, to something like Itonia, which had, you know, 38 source cues mm-hmm. in it, which is a year and a half of my life. When did you get involved? With it? So let's, let's use Itonia as mm-hmm. the example, because yeah. Oscars and that. Um, when did you get involved? Uh, so very early on at script stage. Basically. Okay, so so the script. When you sent, read the script, yes. Did you think this is going to be in awards territory and all that sort of stuff? Mm, almost, not quite. The script was amazing. Mm-hmm. I love, love, love the script. Knew that I definitely wanted to work on it. Thought the script was amazing. When I saw the first footage, basically the first assembly, and funnily enough because they wanted it to be such a music-focused film, I saw it incredibly early, Mm -hmm. and I actually saw it before a lot of the producers. So there was a sort of four-month period which was really weird, where it's basically me and the editor were the only people to have sort of seen. So were you already talking to the editor and maybe even the director at script stage about the kind of cues that were going to be in it? Uh, Or was it very much once you were actually getting more so with the footage like so we kind of had early conversations at script stage that they did want it to be you know have quite a lot of music <laughs> the extent of which <laughs> didn't become clear until we properly got into it mm-hmm. um but uh, but yeah once i saw the first first assembly i knew and i you know i alison Janney, best supporting actress calling it right here right now mm-hmm. uh, not the extent to which it became huge and got the level of love that it did mm-hmm. um, but yeah you definitely got a sense that it was it was something special that was gonna and do really well on a creative level how much say did you have on what music was being used or were you kind of being pointed in the in the direction by directors yeah and stuff like that? so on Itonia or in general yeah, on, on, let's keep, keep it with Itonia as the example because yeah. um, everyone's going to be different but. yeah of course a, a bit of both you know there was very specific tracks that the director wanted that mm-hmm. we had to try and get um, but then generally speaking the way that he liked to do stuff at, at the early stages was uh, even though the film set late 80s early 90s he wanted a very classic rock uh, basically an American hustle style sort of soundtrack Uh, so very Americana very 60s early 70s so in those early days it was just feed me with music feed me with music Mm -hmm. so I would just look for music from that era from all different sorts of me having read the script and having looked at some stuff tracks that I thought would suit particular, not not necessarily specific scenes, but specific vibes, specific yeah, yeah, yeah. lyrical message, you know, whatever that may be. And a huge variety was the other thing. It was mm-hmm. just, so just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tracks that I would sort of send over. And then from that sort of bunch, they would pick some stuff and put them to specific scenes. Um, and then we would either be able to get those cleared and then great, so that's what we do. Or for whatever reason, money for the most part, those not be able to work, but then having a sense of, right, we knew we wanted this track for this cue. Mm-hmm. My search is then revised with that as a guide track, basically. Yep. Um, so in terms of how much creatively I have a say on Itonia, it's it's actually quite a lot. Like mm-hmm. there's, um, so as I said, yeah, there's about, uh, about 35, 38 cues, I'd say of those, Probably about 15 that, 15 that I specifically, you know, okay. ones that I'm like, I picked that, that's me. <laughs> I did that one. <laughs> With my crowning glory, uh, my favourite cue, uh, and pleased to say the one that gets a lot of, so is uh, Devil Woman by mm-hmm. Cliff Richard, uh, which sort of plays over Alison Janney's brilliant sort of first scene and introduction, um, which I just love creatively, but then has been really great. A, 
it got picked up in a lot of reviews of people sort of mentioning it, yeah. which was very flattering. Uh, it made the Spotify uh, plays and the sort of downloads for the track go through the roof, which was pleasing internally. Always obviously. good for Sir Cliff. Exactly. Um, but most hilariously, uh, I suddenly, once the sort of film came out and it got mentioned, as I say, in a few reviews, started being followed by like a dozen Cliff Richard Appreciation Societies on Twitter. Lovely. Who would take great to every time it got mentioned anywhere would send me these articles like another great mention for Sir Cliff. Well done. Which <laughs> was hilarious. So, do you have a specific process that you go through for this? I know that, as you mentioned, a lot of films will be different. Some will just be, can you sort out these couple of scenes? Mm. Or they'll be, right, here's the script, we want you in on this from the word go. Yeah. But do you have a, a set way that you do things? I mean, you listen to an awful lot of music, yeah. and that's not an easy thing to do. No, no, it's, it's tricky. Hours and hours and hours a day. Yeah, so I guess my process is I will, I'll read a script, uh, and then, as you say, project dependent, a lot of scripts will have music written into it, or guide tracks, so you know exactly what sort of vibe they're going for, what they want. Others won't at all. Regardless, what I tend to do, even before my first creative conversation with the director it's mm-hmm. purely just based on the script I'll put together a little folder of some tracks that purely based on the script I think you know would fit tonally budget wise etc just to give them a sort of sense of you know where I would be kind of coming up yep. and then from there once you have a creative conversation with the director you sort of you know they're either like oh yeah that's brilliant that's exactly where we're at great same page and mm-hmm. expand on that or it's the complete opposite, and they're like, no, you couldn't be more wrong, that's not what we want, this is what I actually want. And they're like, alright, cool, well, then we'll just, you know, Agreed revise, yeah, then yeah, go yeah. from there. Um, but then, yeah, in terms of a process, uh, it, it's very much how the filmmakers kind of want to work. So you have filmmakers who are very, very specific, um, and then that's almost more of a sort of it almost becomes more of a clearance rather than a creative job, which music supervision very much is as well. And mm-hmm. it's another set of skills in terms of negotiations, etc., etc. Um, or you have directors who the complete opposite is uh, is actually is no good at all when directors don't know what they when they're just like I have no idea, I don't know, you tell me, I don't really know about music, you tell me because that's never true. Because what happens They'll is you opinion. send them tracks. And they're like, mm, no, it's not right. But they also don't tell you what they want. So you just get stuck in a cycle. The absolute perfect, you know, the ideal director is a director who knows what they want mood-wise and has perhaps some reference tracks, but is completely open to ideas and to suggestions mm-hmm. and isn't married to anything. Um, but yeah, in terms of a process, I'll sort of... So that being the ideal, let's say, and, you know, it's somewhere in that region of mm-hmm. the director having a sense of what they want. I'll try and coerce out of them, as I say, some guide tracks, which is always the most sort of useful thing to mm-hmm. have. So some reference points and also talk to them about why those reds. So is it the lyrics that they like? Is it the era? Is it the tempo? You know, find out what about the track yep. it is that they want and then use that as a jumping off point to search. Um, so then I will search... Um, are you Are you aware of your budgetary limitations oh, absolutely. at this point you're very, very aware very so you're, you're yeah, yeah, and yeah. I guess this comes from your helps from the hat being a right sound so you can go right I know how much money I've got yeah. which means I'd love to reuse this but it's not going to be absolutely. usable yeah. so let's find something that works and that's really important as a music supervisor because it's piss easy to just do purely creative searches and put anything that without any consideration for the budget is it changing is that thing of things that you would maybe have thought wouldn't be available yeah. are becoming available at prices that you're kind of huh okay complete uh, yeah I don't I mean is it changing yes probably it's changing it's also a constant surprise of stuff that you think is going to be unaffordable and unavailable mm-hmm. sometimes can surprise you if they like the project etc and become available but equally the opposite is true tracks that you've never heard of before you know one hit wonders from like the 50s that mm-hmm. nobody's used or cares about 
will be impossible to clear right. because it's with some random little publisher who has no concept of the value of these things mm-hmm. and completely overquotes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, I would always say, you know, it's worth asking. What I'll do is I'll guide filmmakers, you know, when they want specific tracks, mm-hmm. which I know are probably going to be incredibly expensive. Yeah. I'll tell mm-hmm. them as much. But what I won't ever do is say no. I won't ever sort of say, forget about it, mm-hmm. even if I know it's going to be out of budget. It's always worth asking the conversation. Because so, a, yeah. a, yeah, the rights owners might, you know, come down. But also what tends to happen, this tends to be on films where they have more money to play with, obviously, mm-hmm. than super low budget stuff. But if they really, really want something, they will go and find the money. Um, and then it's my job to shut my mouth as to whether or not I think it's worth paying for it, which most of the time I do not. Fair enough. But if it's their, it's, you know, it's their mm-hmm. film, it's what they yeah, want to yeah. do, then that's what they do kind of thing. At the time of recording, mm-hmm. uh, a film has been released on Netflix called yes. Calibre mm-hmm, that's come out uh, Netflix different way of distributing films many many more films are coming out that way aren't going into cinemas it's, does it have any impact any effect on that kind of the back end thing that um, people like yourself are doing so when it comes mostly, to budget yeah. creative or anything like that are they trying to be are they t- being turned around quicker so on something like Calibre, I think especially there's a sort of difference between films that are funded by Netflix mm-hmm. from the get-go and films which end up on Netflix, which get sold to Netflix, right. which is very much what Calibre was. So okay. Calibre was always a UK production, mm-hmm. um, independent film. Uh, so when I come on board at that stage, we don't know who the distributor is. We don't know where it's going to end up. The budget okay. is fixed and it is what it is. And then in this case, it happens that they did a Netflix deal and so the film went on Netflix. Right. Um, I think that's very different to, you know, a Bright or something, which is a Netflix production, mm-hmm. um, which had a huge budget. Yeah. And so I think were you to work on that, then obviously, yes, that does sort of change... Um, but do you think this, this, these new models of things are going to have any impact on, I guess, the filmmaking processes? Mm-hmm. Or is it just going mm-hmm. to be very, very similar and it's just, rather than it being released on yeah. cinemas on a certain date, it's just going to be available? I'm all for it. I think it's, you know, there's a lot of snobbism about, about the whole it yeah. not being on, you know, a big screen mm-hmm. and therefore missing out on that theatrical opportunity. But the reality of it is, A... This is how people consume media now, you know. The two are not mutually exclusive, mm-hmm. but you have to come to terms with the fact that this is how people consume media. And if it means that by virtue of putting your film on Netflix, it's going to be seen as opposed to, especially when it comes to independent film, you know, which is really, really hard to sell, mm-hmm. you know, nationally, let alone internationally, where you might, something like a caliber might have had, you know, a limited theatrical run and then then just yeah and kind of whereas it by virtue of it being on Netflix it's had an incredible sort of I mean Mm -hmm. Stephen King tweeted about it and it being one of his favourite thrillers and so it's you know with his millions of followers Mm -hmm. boom suddenly that goes out everybody's talking about it I'm all for it I think Netflix is um, you know saviour is obviously probably a bit of exaggeration but but it doesn't look like it's going to effect or change well what's interesting is it's changing not over here I don't think yet but the US our US counterparts for example are getting quite snooty with they still don't see that distinction between a Netflix funded big budget thing a la Bright or The Crown or whatever Mm -hmm. and something like The End of the Fucking World which actually was a Channel 4 series Mm -hmm. an independent British series which then happened to, to be sold yeah, to Netflix yeah. and therefore internationally was sold as a but they sort of they see Netflix and they think big budget so we have to up our fees right. we can't be charging and that, and I don't think it's you more can, intricate than that it's much more intricate yeah, than that yeah. you have to look at each individual production and each individual's production's origin and you really and have to understand budget. the mechanics of 
how things get sold and distributed yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's not just because it's on Netflix, therefore they've got all the money in the yeah. world. You know, on the contrary, it doesn't work like that. Okay. You have, or still do have, a production company yourself. Uh, you made a couple of shorts. <laughs> any any thoughts about going back into oh. the wonderful world of filmmaking? I mean, I the short answer is if somebody turned around and gave me money and a crew, I would love to because I loved it. Incredible experience. Uh, the reality of it is, though, is it's uh, if you're not going to do it as a career, which um, you know, especially when I was doing, when I moved into doing full time supervision, which was obviously what I always wanted to do, mm-hmm. was very much the the you know career path. If you're not going to do it as a career, it's a really expensive hobby mm-hmm. uh, to sort of have. Uh, and as I say, you are sort of at the mercy of other people by you know even the most minimal that you're still reliant on X amount of crew to mm-hmm. be able to do something. And when you don't have money and you're asking for favours, etc., yep. there's only so far you can do with it. So that's why that sort of kind of... I stopped doing it, basically. On the back burner. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. If anybody's got a few grand kicking around, then, uh, <laughs> then I'd love to. So what would be the advice for those who want to either become filmmakers or get into music supervision? Uh, so filmmaking, go out and do it. That's And especially with technology being what it is now, you can literally shoot stuff on your phone. Mm-hmm. Like, it's crazy. So filmmaking, go out and do it. Get a phone, get a few mates, and just physically go and do it. And then, yep. you know, that will sort of grow exponentially. Um, music supervision-wise, if you want to get into music supervision, I do personally recommend going the right owner's way because I think it does give you an extra sort of insight uh, mm-hmm. and, and added sort of skills. But again, what I would, it, it's about its about credits. So if it's something that you're just looking into, um, I would say, uh, you know, for students, for example, thinking about moving into that side of the industry, hook up with a film school, go and talk to some film students, supervise their projects. Mm-hmm. So just help them find a couple of tracks, build up a little portfolio, then you can start, you know, with each mm-hmm. one moving up, basically. Um, yeah. Cool. Love your stuff. Awesome. Thank you. Massive thank you to Jen for getting involved. It was a really, really interesting conversation. Hopefully, like with a number of my guests, I want to get her back on to speak a bit more specifically about um, some of the jobs that she's been working on, especially some of the music supervision jobs that she's been working on since having this this conversation. Um, So again, thank you very much to Jen for getting involved. Um, It was really, really great. If anybody is interested in getting in touch with Jen, please do so via the podcast and email me, uh, on behind the business pod at gmail.com uh, you can obviously get in touch with me via that email address as well as my twitter account at danny champion as well as via the podcast on instagram at behind the business pod um, thank you very much for continuing to listen until next week or until next time you listen to my wonderful voice i bid you good day <laughs>